Welcome to a super special episode of V8 Radio. This is the companion program to the 200th episode of Muscle Car of the Week. And in this episode, we're airing the complete interview we recorded with three-time Indy 500 winner Bobby Unser, recorded at the 2016 Muscle Car and Corvette Nationals in Chicago. And this interview was a special stage presentation where Unser gave us the story about the amazing 1969 Ford Torino Pikes Peak Racer that he drove to victory back in 1969. And the legendary cast of characters in his story includes Bunky Knudsen, Smokey Eunuch, Bill Strop, Holman and Moody, and many others. And Unser tells this fascinating story as if it happened yesterday. The car is a purpose-built stock car built by Bill Strop and Holman and Moody and is powered by a Smokey Eunuch-built Boss 429. And Unser hadn't seen this car since 1969, but he was surprised to learn that the car remains in as-raced condition today. He went on to share many stories of racing in general and how to be a winner not only on the track, but also in life. And uh, he even included a great recollection of a huge party after winning a snowmobile racing season. So I didn't know at the time, but Unser was not only a racer, but he's also a, a very brilliant engineer, a pilot, uh, and has all kinds of great skills to make him a winner in life. The 69 Torino Pikes Peak Racer display was a huge hit at the Muscle Car and Corvette Nationals, and the car is a very special piece of racing history in the Brothers Collection. So we hope you enjoy the show. Yes, we'd like to welcome everybody uh, here at the Muscle Car and Corvette Nationals. We've got a very special guest this afternoon. My name is Kevin Osi, and joining me is uh, a man you've all heard of definitely, none other than three-time Indy 500 champion and 13-time Pikes Peak winner, Mr. Bobby Unser. Howdy to all of you. And uh, part of the reason why Mr. Unser's here, not only because this is a great car show, but the Muscle Car and Corvette Nationals and the Brothers Collection have brought out a particular car that Mr. Unser ran back in 1969. You might have seen it. It's a red, white, and blue Ford Torino. And today we wanted to chat with you a little bit about what it was like back in those days, racing Pikes Peak, and maybe a little bit about this particular car. Yeah, all of you should be sure to go by and see that car. It's absolutely, other than the tires that are on it, absolutely, original as I drove at race day. Engine has never been taken apart. Uh, paint looks awfully nice on it, but <laughs> it was nice when I ran it, and it's still that way. Never been repainted, nothing's ever been done to it. It's just amazing. I, As I was telling you before, Kevin, I kept track of it for many years, and then all of a sudden it disappeared, now it showed up again, and here I am in Chicago seeing it. Yeah, what after a great show. So, just a little bit of the backstory about uh, your experiences with Pikes Peak. I mean, they, they call this Unser's Hill, don't they? This is kind of your race. Well, the Unser's have won it 30 some odd times in different <laughs> classes, so I guess earned that a little bit. But the, uh, I, I had most of my times at Pikes Peak were with real race cars, you know, like we think race cars are open wheel cars. and. And uh, but then they started bringing back the stock car division, so that's where this car came to light. It'd been running for a while, but but they were real stock cars. In other words, not souped up modifieds or hot rods or or whatever cars. This car actually ran gasoline, 
not alcohol. I mean, real, real, real stock cars. Now, obviously, had a tremendous amount of fine tuning to it. I mean, Smokey Eunuch, anybody remember Smokey Eunuch? Everybody should, you know. Heck yeah. <laughs> anyway, he built the engine for us with it, and it was owned by Ford Motor Company. And Bunky Knudsen was the president of Ford, and he wanted the record for Ford. And I was down at Daytona, not racing, but just down there hobnobbing one time and, and uh, talking to Bunky, and he said, well, he'd like to have the record of Pike's Peak. And I said, well, yeah, I already got it. Mercury has it with Parnelli Jones. And he said, no, no, Bob, you don't understand. I'm Ford. That's Mercury. And I always thought they were the same, you know. <laughs> They're about the same, but I thought he was really serious about it. So I said, boss, if you want the record, we'll get you the record. It's just going to be a lot of work, and that's the outcome of it. Beautiful car. Awesome car, and uh, I love how he casually mentions he's at Daytona just hobnobbing with Bunky Newton and Smoky Eunuch. Uh, and I noticed he called the boss. Well, yeah, he was the boss. When he was with Pontiac, he was in the Mountain Division, which is Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, stuff like that. And uh, I needed help at Bike Speak. I had my first race car that I physically owned myself, all put together, but I needed some engine pieces. And he just, in Pontiacs, the good stuff, you couldn't just go down the junkyard and get it. So I just uh, called up Bunky Newson, head boss of Pontiac, and I didn't even know if he would know me, I didn't know if he would care. But I needed some pieces, I needed a crankshaft, and I needed some cylinder heads and, and stuff like that. And uh, this was really a cute one, I didn't tell you about this, Kevin, but at any rate, I, I, I got Bunky on the phone, he answered the phone, which I can't believe he did. His secretary did, but gave me to him. He talked to me. And so at any rate, I told him I just need a few pieces. But they had to be the racing pieces. And uh, like a crankshaft, you know, not just a stock crank. And he said, well, he didn't know for sure. He was very casual about it. He says, but he'd check on it and uh, see if he could find me some pieces. And remember, he's the boss. And so, you know, I, I told him, I said, well, if, if you could just maybe call over to engineering, I said, they'll have that stuff laying around on the floor. Maybe you could grab a couple of pieces for me there. And he said, we'll see what we can do. He says, uh, I'll get back to you. So then I got a shop in Albuquerque. And uh, so one day, a couple of weeks from then, up pulls a great big diesel rig with all those big trailers on the back. And the guy walks in the front door, and, and, and I'm used to getting parts like that from all over the United States for foreign cars, you know. So I just figured if somebody had sent me the parts that I'd ordered. And the guy said, where do you want this stuff? And he said, well, I don't know, what is it? And because I need to figure out which door we're going to put it into. It was that trailer. I went, he went up there and opened the door. The trailer was stacked double-decker, the whole length of that trailer, with Pontiac racing engines. <laughs> now, I didn't even have a place to keep that many engines. I didn't have a warehouse. I didn't have anything. So it took me months to give all those engines away to people. <laughs> all I needed was a few parts, you know. At any rate, I won the race that year with my 
Pontiac engine in there, borrowed pieces from everybody, including Pontiac. So then Bunky Knudsen. Later on, they hire him to be the big boss of Ford Motor Company. So then comes the story where I was with him down in Daytona, and of course it was nice to talk to him because I hadn't seen him since I'd done the Pontiac things at Pike's Peak. So Bunky being Bunky Newson loves racing. He wanted to win Pike's Peak with a Ford, and he wanted a new record. That's what he wanted, was the record, see? So he opened, he opened the door to my life right there, gave me anything and everything I wanted. In fact, Jack Passanaw, that was in charge of Ford racing world over in those days, was over in one side, it was the big Goodyear Tower, Goodyear Tire Tower, and, and Jack was way over on the other side of the room. Now, he didn't like me too well, but we didn't have many dealings together, so he didn't have any reason to not like me. That was my opinion. And so he called Jock over and he says, you know Bobby Answer? And he said, yeah. He said, he's going to run Pike's Peak for us this year. And he says, I want you to give Bobby everything and anything he wants. And that's the words he used. And that passing off stood there, he's a real short guy. He stood there looking up at us and, and I thought, wow, that's pretty strong talk, you know. And this is the biggest boss the Ford has. And he says, give him anything he wants. Yeah, you're wondering how you got in so good with him. Well, with, with <laughs> yeah. With Bunky, yeah. Yeah, with the two Pontiac, yeah. And at any rate, I says, well, we're going to need a couple of things to start off with. We've got to have Bill Strop build the car. And he's out in Long Beach, California. And Passanot doesn't like Strop either. But I wasn't into it politically at the time. And so he told Passano, he says, well, Strop's going to build the car. Passano doesn't like that. And he says, uh, I told him, I said, well, now we need to get an engine. I says, we need to have a smoky unit building. And Smokey and I were good friends, so I kind of knew that he'd do it. So Smokey was over there in the room, too. He calls him over, and that Passano, can't believe that. He doesn't like Smokey either. <laughs> so there's three guys he doesn't like right off the bat. But he can't do anything about it. And, and, and the boss had already told him, get Bobby anything he wants. So I got the most beautiful race car belt you could ever believe. I can remember one day, I gotta tell this little story too. Remember one day I was in the shop there in Albuquerque and I get a phone call and it was somebody in Ford Transmissions. And uh, he says, you know, you wanted these special gears. Now, I had decided that I wanted an automatic transmission. Totally the opposite of what racing people would think. Because you'd have a four-speed, whatever. And I didn't want that because, just imagine, you got, you're going up high speed. It's all uphill, or most of it is. And every time you shift gears, just imagine with an engine with that much horsepower, you go from second to third. Those rear tires are going to break loose and spin a bunch. And they go from third to fourth, it would be the same answer. So that, that thing makes real horsepower, lots of torque. And, and so I decided that what I needed was a torque converter in the car, an automatic transmission. So I, whereas the shift, the car would never quit pulling forward. It would just go to another gear and keep going, somewhat like a, like a snowmobile transmission or something like that. They have, they're using it in some cars today. Normally wouldn't be considered the best thing to do, but I had a reason for wanting it, so 
I requested that this is what's not put into the car. But I needed certain gear ratios. Like in second and third, third was the main one. And Ford didn't have any parts that ratio for the, for the gears in the transmission. So they called me up from the transmission division and they says, you know, it's gonna cost an awful lot of money to make all these special gears that you're requesting. And I says, well, I says, you know, I could tell they're, they're, they've got a budget deal that they're worried about. Well, that isn't what Mr. Knudsen said. He said, give Bobby anything he wants. So I thought that's what he meant. <laughs> so at any rate, I told the guy, he says, well, no problem. I says, uh, I know you're probably running out of money, but I said, I'll call Mr. Knudsen, and he'll give you a call, and he'll tell you maybe that it's okay. The guy says, don't worry about it. We're getting paid. It'll be done real quick. And I said, that's, that's fine. I'm glad. You don't ever argue with the boss, you know. <laughs> So what was Smokey's approach to building an engine for an automatic-powered race car to go uphill? Well, it wasn't so much the automatic, because I was able to keep the RPMs up pretty good. But Smokey wouldn't build an engine just for anybody. I mean, he was a good friend of mine, and, uh, and he knows his Ford Motor Company. He and Bunky Knudsen owned a helicopter together, so that'll kind of tell you. I went in with a little bit of an edge there. And plus, they were both good friends of mine. And Smokey would like to win Pikes Peak, and especially with Bobby Unser. I mean, that would have been a, been a good deal for him. And Ford Motor Company's going to do it because the boss said do it. So it was really cute. We got the, uh, Bill Strop built the car. I got all of the stock people that came to Pikes Peak. Big deal. In other words, big, big. Bunky Newton sent everybody from Ford Motor Company that was high out on the company planes to watch the race. Some of them didn't like that because it was their weekend, but that's, that's all right. And so after the race is over, it was before the days of having cell phones. I don't know if any of us can remember back that far because we live on our cell phones, you know. But at any rate, didn't have such a thing, but we kept the car and maintained it at Pikes Peak, right at the bottom of the hill at a gas station. We just rented one of the stalls, the gas station, and ran it out of there. I could drive it right out of there and up the hill on practice mornings, for example, and race day to the starting line. So at any rate, I got down there, and there's a pay telephone on the wall, and of course, I, I no doubt had Bunky's home phone number. He's the only one from the high echelon of Ford that didn't go to the race. That, to this day, I never figured that out. So I called him at his house and I said, okay, boss. I said, you got your record that you won. And I said, we set a good one for you. And he says, good, Bobby. He says, I'm glad. He says, that's what we wanted. And I said, yeah. I said, now what are you gonna do with the car? Because it was a special built car, only good for Pikes Peak. But I know that Passanaw, being that he didn't really like this too much anyway, only had Passanaw go to the races, incidentally. <laughs> so, so at any rate, he, he, uh, he says, well, what do you want to do with the car? I says, I don't really know, but I says, if you give it, if you give it to Holman Moody, Passanaw, I says, he's just going to make a short tracker out of it. And I says, all that money that you spend is going to go to, to waste. And he says, well, don't worry about it, the car is yours. So he just gave me the car right on the telephone. Now, I didn't even have a trailer for it. 
And besides that, I race it once or twice every week all over the United States. And so I, I hung up the phone and thinking, what in the world, how am I gonna even get it to Albuquerque? I got a place to keep it, because I'd shut my shop down, but what am I gonna do with a stock car? I didn't think of what you see here in this big room. I had no perception that far ahead. I was racing every week somewhere. That's all, the only interest I had. So I just gave it to Bill Straw. And he's the one that hauled it there, he's the one that built it, and I know he won't sell it. So it stayed out of Straw's, and he showed it. That's in Long Beach, California, all over, but, but he up and died one time, and of course, then they sold it. And the company sold out, in other words, they closed out their business. And uh, so the car, I stayed with it. A guy bought it, I became friends of his, and he'd take it to Pikes Peak every year. But he was still running the same tires on it, even that I drove it on race day with. In other words, he hadn't changed anything on the car. So I was really proud of him, really nice. Well, some years went by again, and he up and died on me. So now he's gone, and so the next thing, this is the... This is me keeping track of the car as time went on. So then all of a sudden, the, uh, I get a call, call from a, a girl. And, and if I remember right, it was the guy that just died. Last one, it was his, I think, sister. Could have been his wife. I'm not too sure. Getting to be a long time ago. Then she wanted to know what the car was worth, in my opinion, and what she could do with it. Because she didn't want it. Family didn't want to keep it. And she wanted to sell the car. So I said, you know, I'd be kind of a shame. I says, you know, you could donate this thing to a museum. And I says, you can write off a whole lot more than you can sell it for. I know, because I had a habit of doing things like that. <laughs> Easier to deal with the government in a crooked way than it is being legit. <laughs> we all know that. You know? <laughs> You guys too, I can. <laughs> Some are laughing a little louder than others over here. <laughs> so, so at any rate, uh, then I lost track of the car. The car went out of my sight, and I haven't seen it nor heard about it until today. First time I've seen it. And it's just amazing. The car is still exactly the same way, except they did buy some new tires, by speak tires. The tires I even designed. That was with Goodyear. Tire and rubber, I designed the tires. Pike Peak was one of my main places. It was the first two ply tires they ever used for racing. And if you look around today, there isn't a midget race in the United States, nor a sprint car race in the United States that doesn't run two ply tires. They all came from Bobby Unser's, probably had a couple of drinks and decided on another idea. See? So all of that stuff still exists with the car and its original. So those of you that haven't had time to go by and see it, go see it, it's nice. And it was made to be a showpiece plus a good race car. So many little trickery things that were done to that car, you just wouldn't believe it. Like the rear springs are not in the normal place. But a normal person wouldn't even notice that difference. Shock absorbers are not where they came out on a, on a regular car. So many things like that that were done. Changed the roll center heights. We just did a bunch of things to that car, and it all worked. And they made a show car out of it at the same time because figure if you're working for Bunky Knudsen, the big boss of Ford Motor Company, you better look nice. 
And of course it did. Does. Well, and throughout your career, you've been close to hundreds of race cars, but this one really has seemed to have left a mark on Yes, that's for sure. You know, I mean, you know, even with race cars, some people keep them nice, some people don't. You know, I drove for Roger Penske for a while, last three years of my career in Indy cars, and never see a Penske car that isn't just like the Ford Motor Company car. <laughs> we always call it Penske Perfect. We have some questions. We have one over here. In 1993. Talk really loud because I can hear him back there easier than I can hear you. In 1993, I was part of the crew that took that Studebaker Bondi and called it to Lobby to Bonneville. And we were the first Studebaker to go 200 miles an hour. When we made our record return run, you made your record return run in a 29 Ford Roadster at Bonneville. Yes, that's got a good memory. <laughs> Do you want to expound on that, you know, because we were busy, you were busy, so I didn't get a chance to talk to you at Bonneville, you know, 23 years ago. You know, 23 what, what, what years ago. Bonneville in a 29 Roadster? Well, I, I had a, there was a auto auction company. They were the largest in the world in those days, called ATA. And I did a lot of promotional stuff all over the United States for them. And they, they decided, the number two guy in the company, decided that he, that he needed something through all the shows that he did all around the United States, a talking point, a seeing point, something to cause attention. So a couple of guys in the company like Bonneville. Now I had never seen Bonneville in my life. Then over at my airplane, a bunch of white stuff down there looks like snow. I just didn't know what it was all about. And so they got a hold of me and said, what do you think about doing Bonneville? I said, I don't know, it's whatever you got, I don't know anything about it. Tell me what division, all the stuff. So they decided they didn't know, so I just picked the Model T Roaster because we found a used one that we could buy, and then we can change it and make it a little nicer. And I hired a, a mechanic, actually one that I almost raised in Indianapolis, in fact, he was the chief mechanic for Buddy Lazare when he won the race. So Ronnie wasn't too busy at the time, and I, I just told Ronnie, I said, we got a, I found a car, you gotta go get it and fix it up. And I said, we're gonna go to Bonneville. He said, we're gonna do what? I said, we're gonna go to Bonneville. And, and he says, okay. So then, yeah, I gotta have an engine for it, because the car was just a strip like junkyard stuff kind of, you know? So I said, so I thought, well, ah, I might as well get the best. So I called Jack Roush, the Ford Motor Company specialist, you know? And I told Jack, I said, hey, I, I know the man and we're good friends. So I said, hey man, we're gonna go to Bonneville and I need an engine. And uh, I'm gonna put it in a T-bucket, it's gonna be 300 inches and uh, it's gotta run on gasoline. He says, okay, keep talking. And I said, well, I need for you to build it for me. And I said, I need you to kind of do it personally. And he says, okay. He says, I'll do that. And I said, okay, there's one more thing. I said, you got to come with it. Because you know if the boss is there, it's going to be a good one. See? <laughs> no doubt about that. So Jack came, we got the car put together, went to Bonneville, had two days to do everything, if you remember. At no time, we had to get off to another deal. Okay? 
So we, we went one time, and uh, for some reason, I, I guess I must have gotten into it one of the officials, and he declared part of the run illegal. Not that the car was illegal, but he just said I did something wrong. Maybe I didn't get back to a certain place at a certain time. I don't know. But at any rate, he got fired because he was getting political. And it was an unfair situation. But that's okay. I just says, everybody was at the bar that night, our crew, celebrating because we just set a record. And I said, hey, put the whiskey away. We're going again tomorrow. So, so make them, make their show them this. No big deal. No accident. So we went the next day and went a little bit faster again. Okay? The only problem is we lost Roush. He had to leave. He thought we'd already done it, so he's gone. That was a one-day thing, see? So that's how we did Bonneville. And then the car went all over the United States, being shown at all the auto auction deals. Got a lot of attention. And I don't know where the car went on that one, either. I wish I had it today, though. That was a nice car. Any of you have any more questions? There's kind of a, an interesting theme with your life being a champion and basically everything you set out to do. And, you know, maybe it's a t-shirt design you should have, but the saying of, might as well get the best. Well, you know, winning is a lot more fun than losing. You know, I think we all think There's another t-shirt. Yeah. And, and, you know, I spent a lot of years at the other end of that spectrum. And uh, you lose a lot and lost a hell of a lot more races than I ever won. So it makes the ones that you win a lot more important. So in, in the course of all of that stuff that goes on, you learn how to win. And the first thing you do is start off with the biggest of the biggies that you can get to associate with you. If you need an engine, you get the best. If you need a car, you get the best. If you need mechanics, you find the best ones. Of course, a driver needs all of that. Drivers don't really do much themselves. You know, I use my head and, and sometimes my foot a little bit, and that was my contributing to the race cars going fast. I had a lot of ideas. I'm a self-taught mechanical engineer. I didn't go to, to I did one year of high school, was all I did. Don't want any kids to think that you don't go to school because I didn't, but I had to learn everything the hard way. And uh, I don't regret it. And we ended up being pretty good. We check with SAE right now, I'm listed as a mechanical engineer. I don't even have an education. Probably can't spell it, you know? <laughs> but I learned what makes cars go fast. I learned how to make things successful. And very successful at it. When you look back at all the different forms of racing you've been in, is there a favorite or did you enjoy each one equally? I really enjoyed all of racing, and I found out that I could do anything. It didn't, it didn't make a lot of difference. I mean, going to Bonneville, I would have thought that would have been downplaying Bobby Unser at the time. I had a ball doing that. I mean, I really had a ball. And, and found out the people liked it. And so, you know, I didn't have just a favorite. But if I did, obviously, Spike Peak. I mean, when I was, I don't know, about eight years old, and ten along in there, we had our first car on Model A Ford. We sold five donkeys and bought an old Model A. That was our first car. 
and, and we put it number three on the door. Isn't it weird? I want Indianapolis with number three. I've won a whole bunch of races with number three. Now, on the Ford stock cars, number 92, that was my brother Jerry's number. Usually I'm not superstitious or anything like that, but Jerry was uh, national stock car champion one year and didn't get a chance to see that brother very long because he got killed in Indianapolis. And so there was some ups and downs to it, so I kind of switched from liking the number three to number 92. That's what's on, on that car. And uh, it just was a coincidence, you know? It just seems like number three was always there. I looked at uh, Dale Earnhardt. I think he liked that number three too, you know? And he went fast. <laughs> what was it like being in such a competitive family that was so into this stuff? Well, it, you know, being a, having a competitive racing family, it really wasn't difficult, especially when we were young. Because Al and I, he had a business on one side of Highway 66, and I was on the other side. And he had a, a wrecking yard, a junkyard, and I had the repair business. And uh, so we, we got along really good. Sometimes I had to buy used parts to keep people going down the road, because the foreign cars didn't run very far without breaking down. That was good for me in that sense. But the, uh, we would uh, just work back and forth. Well, we went to Pike's Peak together. In other words, he was my competitor. But Al was really quick, and uh, he, he was hard to beat. So as it went on years later down the road, Al ended up driving for George Big Naughty, the chief mechanic that became so famous. And Al won a lot of races. I mean, it was two years, and he was the most un touchable driver in the United States. Well, I had two bad years, and boy, that was really getting kind of tiresome because uh, cars were very important in those days, and sometimes I couldn't get the car I needed or the car that I wanted. And so Al was on one of those real big high hot streaks, and he was winning on the dirt, he was winning in everything, and he had a stock car he was driving too, for a guy out of Illinois. And so that got me kind of interested in running the stock cars on my off time in USAC, called it the Northern Circuit. So I just went and got a better car than he had. And uh, drove for Ralph Moody, I mean, great guy. Harry Hyde, K.K. Dodge, some of you can remember that. Well, they got in a big fight with NASCAR. So they just said, let's go get Bobby and we'll run USAC. So I did that. And one day, near all the races I ran for them, they were good cars. I just saw a super bird a little while ago down the aisle here. There's one that's almost identical to what I set the track record with at Milwaukee on the stock cars. <laughs> and so I always found somehow or another, I found the best, the good stuff to do, good cars, good people. That's what makes you win in anything, having good people. When you talk about uh, Pikes Peak, if people haven't seen this event be run, it is one of the hardest things to watch as a spectator because it's so scary. Take us through what it's like to run that race. Well, the race is, first place it used to be gravel. Still should be. Unfortunately, they paved it and that basically ruined it. But that's my opinion. 
And I'm only probably millions of other people who think the same thing. But the 12 and a half miles from the start line to the top, it's the second oldest race in the United States, and uh, it's got 160 turns. And these are turns, not just little bends in the road, they're turns. And so it, it's very hard to learn. The drop-offs in places go, it's nothing to have 1,000 feet almost straight down, no way to stop. So the drop-offs are bad, lots of drop-offs, 300, 500 feet. And, uh, and you've got to get over that. And for example, the biggest fear that I have in my entire life is height. I couldn't stand to be up that high. And so I had to overcome this. And, and I'm also a pilot and own a couple of airplanes and I fly. And my wife does as well, but she's not afraid of height. I'm scared to death of it, still today. So, so what I did like at Pikes Peak, I drive up, up and down the road and get real close to the edge, real close. Maybe I'd be doing 15 miles an hour, maybe 20, 25 miles an hour. But I'd run right on the edge, and I'd start out maybe at 10 miles an hour. And I'd do this all day long, just go up and down, up and down. And, and I already know the road, because I've been going up and down it since I was probably, I don't know, 15 years old. I live in Albuquerque, and it's only 400 miles up there. When I was in the Air Force, I was at Cheyenne, so I'd go down, I knew where they hit the key to the gate, I'd go down and do it at night. So I, I, I learned to overcome the height fears up there. Number one, I never look over the edge. Never let my eyes go that direction. Because I'd slow down if I did. So I just act like all that blue sky doesn't exist. It's all just dirt like I've been running all my life. And so that's how I got over the fear of height. Parnelli Jones. I thought Parnelli would do the same thing. We'd spend all day. He'd drive up, I'd drive down. we just keep switching all day long, getting near the edge and just knocking the gravel off the edge to the point where it became ho-hum. And that's how I got over the fear of that. And it was the same way in my flying. I couldn't, I couldn't stand the height while I was flying, so I, I didn't go get a license. I just flew without a license for a few years there, you know, because I just, I know the minute they give me my cash, they're going to want me to take that plane up and they call it stall it and it's going to drop and it's going to scare me to death. So there ain't no sense in doing that. And, and so, <laughs> terrible to do that, but I, I, I had to get to the races. I couldn't drive. I had to have an airplane. So you just do your halves of doing and it works. It didn't catch me, that's all. That was good. <laughs> I love this approach, you know, whatever it needs to do, you just do it, right? Deal with the paperwork later. Uh, so what is the elevation difference? How high I'm is it? Sorry right? to speak, I'm sorry. That's okay. That's right there. <laughs> anyway, probably at 12 and a half miles, 160 turns, and, and when you go above, like uh, Glenn goes about the halfway point, say 11,000 feet, you're going to run out of trees, because from then on up, there's no trees. So, it, 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 it's beautiful because it's just rock, ground up granite rock road, and that's all the country is. You can see wild sheep up there every day, stuff like that, and you got the moss, the moss that grows up that high, it makes it pretty. But that goes all the way to the end, and the road just gets a little bit 
slipperier because the fans don't really go from about, say, oh, three-fourths of the way up to the finish line. There's very few race fans. They can't breathe up there any better than we can because it ends at 14,110 feet. Now, that isn't so bad if, if you live in that high altitude like I do. I could live all the time that high. I mean, I didn't put oxygen on in my airplanes in those days till I'd get to about 16,000 feet because I could survive the high altitude really easy. But you take city slickers, people that come from Chicago will throw things at me now. But people that live back in this part of the world have a tough time when they go up there. So they used to sell oxygen up on the top because the people get up there and they get out of the car and they couldn't walk very far because no air to breathe, very little. And so it was, a, it was a rough place that way. And most of the drivers, except the guys that lived up there, didn't like the height. Didn't like the big drop-offs. And I don't blame them, you know, but, but they should have used my theory. Just don't look, you know. If, if you don't look, there's no problem. And I only, in all the years that I ran Pike Peak, 13 wins, and I think I lost four times. And those were mechanicals. Nobody, I was lucky because nobody ever beat me at Pike's Peak. Nobody ever just outran me. Well, I'm sorry, first year. First year. Finished fifth. Forgot that one. But that's the only time I ever got, got out on the Pike's Peak. And, and so most of the people were no different than I was. They didn't like the drop-offs. But the people that lived up there, Gullah Mountain men, I they were okay with it. One of the city slickers that came in was rough on them. And at the time, most of them were bringing Indianapolis cars up. Indianapolis cars weren't so much roadsters in those days as they were skinny nerd cars. The mile track cars, Rainfield, DeCoin, Sedalia, stuff like that. And when the answers went up there, we came from Albuquerque back up and, and we didn't see cars like that. We, we, had, we didn't have any money to begin with. We were so poor you couldn't believe it. And we would build our own cars in the shop and we had different concepts in mind. You know, different types of suspensions, different types of springs, different types of rear ends, different types of front ends, just different everything. Engines, we would build, build our own engines, and we made them special for Pike's Peak. We had more power on the low end, because 160 turns. You had to go to a low gear and come off the turns, so you had to get the car moving in a hurry. And you know, I figured out when I was really young that if I could just, on every sharp hairpin turn, if I could get a second and a half, I just think, 101, there's a second, and take a half of that. That's all I'd have to gain on every turn, and there's nobody going to touch me. And it turned out to work that way. So I concentrated on the engines, the gear ratios coming off the turns, and how to get traction on that, uh, Loose gravel. The two-ply tire was invented up there. That was my idea. I used to, my dad invented this, but we used to get ground-up walnut shells mixed with the rubber and run recap tires. And that was just a whole new era in Pike Peak. And they immediately, Firestone had all the tires in those days, and they didn't like us running recaps. 
because we were getting recaps for nothing. But remember, we didn't have any money. And so recaps made sense. So we ran the recaps with the walnut shells in them and, and beat the Firestone. Well, now Firestone was putting a lot of money into the race, but they were losing the race because the cat called Bobby Elson was winning all of them with these walnut shells and his tires. And they didn't know how to overcome. Instead of trying to beat us in the proper way, building something that we had just kind of invented, they just wanted to force us to run Firestones. Well, I only did that one year, and incidentally, they gave them to me. I didn't buy them. Then I won the race again with the Firestone. But after that, when I got back to Albuquerque, I was so mad, must have had fire coming out of my ears, I called Goodyear Tire Rubber Company. And, and I mean, I'm a little guy in Albuquerque, called the, the head of, of their development division, Goodyear in Akron, Ohio, and some guy answers the phone. <laughs> And I tell him, I say, hey man, I'd like to, to get some special tires built for Pike's Peak. Would you have an interest? Phone gets quiet for a little while. Pretty soon he says, keep talking, I got an interest. And I said, well, I've got lots of ideas, but I've got to have somebody to build them. I said, number one, I've got to have walnut shells in the rubber. I said, can you do that? He says, well, of course we can do that. But we don't like to because then walnut shells would be all over the factory. You know, just like like dust, you know. And so anyway, he sent me some little blocks of rubber in the mail. And he gave me three choices of different size walnut shells. Now, that's not a way to test tires, but, but I just picked out one I liked and called him on the phone. I said, I want number three or whatever it was. Incidentally, those little blocks of rubbers we're at the Ford Motor Company Museum today. I saved them all those years <laughs> and just gave all this stuff to Ford Museum in Dearborn. If you ever go there, you can see it. At any rate, so they, they got more interested. And then they, and, then, and incidentally, I still have a couple of the original tires. I still have today, as I'm sitting here, the absolutely original one that I tested before the walnut shells. No, it was with walnut shells. And didn't even have Goodyear on the side of the tire. They were just a cold casing. And it was probably a four-ply. So then, right after that, I, I thought, wow, I need something that's real cushy, really soft, because all those little different uneven places, I need traction, I need to keep the tires, keep digging in. So I asked the guys, I says, uh, you got any knowledge about making a two-ply tire? The guy said, well, I can make any ply you want. But he says, what are you after? So I explained it to him. And then he says, I can do it. But I said, now wait a minute. I said, can you make a two-ply? This is strong as a four-ply. He says, yes, I can. I said, can you make it as strong as a six-ply? He says, yes, I can. But he says, quit going. That's enough. How much stronger do you need it? I said, oh, that's enough, that's enough. Can you do that? He said, I can do it. I said, okay, can you make some and send them to Albuquerque? So I built a little racetrack on part of my property on, on sand. Not gravel, but on sand. But at least it was in my own yard. So the state police map, and I'd run there because one turn was up right against Highway 66. That caused so much dust people had to stop driving down the highways. So the policeman, they'd call him up and complain, 
And so he'd go have lunch or a cup of coffee or something, wait till I'm finished. Then he'd come and try to find that guy that's causing all these stops. But if I went fast in my own car, he'd give me a ticket. Which he did a bunch of them, you know. Now you gotta remember, when I first started going up there, one of the things we could afford was recaps, and we ended up promoting them from the guy. Because we just didn't have any money. Everything was built back in our own shop. So now I'm with Goodyear, and there I'm doing the testing, but I'm doing it all in Albuquerque. Well, now we've progressed with the tires to the point where I had two ply casing. I designed the tread. If you look on that stock car, that tread was designed by Bobby Unser and, of course, an engineer at Goodyear because he had to draw the pictures. I don't think it's worth a hoot on drawing pictures. But I knew what I wanted. And, and so the tires still made today, and it's nothing but a mud and snow design type. But, you know, you had to have the... the, the Rubber had to be so thick, that's by my deals, not rules. And it had to be so wide, this and that, the other. We just made them wider each year. That's what made them go faster. So they're still doing it today. So then, Goodyear, we got it down to that. So then, they're kind of into it. They've spent a little bit of money designing these things and building the test tires and putting up with me. And so they finally said, well, let's go to Pikes Peak and test it and see if what we're doing is really working. Well, in those days, I could use Pikes Peak Highway and not pay them a nickel for it. They just loved it if I was up there testing or anybody else. <clears throat> and so went up there, Goodyear, now somebody's got to buy the gasoline for us to get up there, motels, food, things like that. Because again, we didn't have that much money. And, and so Goodyear was into it now. Then, believe it or not, I got the first contract with real money from Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. They, they got, found out they really liked me. And they built tires, they built them. And then not only that, I had it where I had control of all the tires. The competitors couldn't buy them. I know that's unfair. I know a lot of you are going to think I'm an a-hole because I did that, but I, come on, I really wanted to win the race. You know, I wasn't there to make the other guys happy because they didn't like that I had the only tire. So I, I was able to corner that market for a couple of years. And then they told me everybody has to have the tires. Well, then I did different compounds made. I knew the compounder because I did an awful lot of testing because I remained with Goodyear throughout my career after that. So now I got a lot of, lot of juice with the, with the guys back in Akron that make these things. So I know all the tires. They all started with the compounds. They all started with a D and then four numbers. So I'd remember the compounds. I'd say, well, let's make me a batch of these. D whatever it was. And I didn't tell the other guys about it naturally, you know. And they weren't smart enough to know what the D numbers were about. So I, I did that for a long time. If you came down to my shop, I could show you that warehouse now. And I'm not broke as I used to be. So I got some of these tires are still on racks up there. And I show a lot of people that go through Albuquerque. Because my house, it isn't a little bitty house anymore. It's 6,500 square feet of trophies and racing memorabilia. I had a lot of, a lot of racing in my life. So that's really nice. So I have a lot of people that stop by going to Albuquerque. My brother has a real racing museum where he's got race cars. So between the two of us, we cover just about everything and in Albuquerque. So it's kind of neat. All these tires 
that I designed are still there. Well, not all of them. I sent a couple of them back to the museum at the fort. So it's really nice. And all of that was so good in memories because I had to think and think and think and test and test and test. I used to hook three or four or five water hoses together from my building all the way out the track. I'd be out there with a water hose, hose trying to wet it down, cut the dust down a little bit. And I'd be testing my camshafts in the engine. Terrible place to test. But it's free. It doesn't cost me anything. A little alcohol for the engine, and, and that's it. Engines run alcohol, not gasoline up there. So that's what we did, and that's Pikes Peak. And, and it became a place that, that I'd like to think that we helped make it famous. But the real truth of it is, Pikes Peak made the answer famous. Second home to race in the United States, and we just won all the time. My biggest competitor was obviously my brother Al. But I didn't tell him all my secrets either. <laughs> well, I think it's pretty remarkable how involved you were in all this stuff. I mean, earlier he says, yeah, I was just a driver. I used my foot and I thought every once in a while. But I don't know too many other drivers that are designing tires and going to the lengths that you went to. But you know, I've, I've done it every walk of life. I did the same thing with snowmobiles. I was the first human being that ever put shock absorbers on snowmobiles. And if you ever rode the old ones, you'd know why I did it. It didn't brains enough to figure out you couldn't ride those things, you know? And they had two and a half inches of travel and then just hit a piece of rubber. Oh, terrible. At any rate, I, I changed that. But got the water-cooled engines in, designed the suspensions, independent suspensions, put sway bars on it. I, I built a, a sled uh, for Chaparral Company out of Denver and agreed to be their racing uh, director, I guess. They gave me a title, whatever it was. But I didn't want to pay for it. But they wanted me to, they, they wanted me to build a sled that would win the races. So I started doing it, and they, and they said, well, no, the president of the company said, how much money do you want? Well, not by then. I was making a little money. I wasn't a poor boy anymore. And, and so I standing right in front of his desk, George Walker was his name, and uh, I said, okay, I'll do it. I said, I'll be the racing one. He says, you be the boss. I said, all right, I'll be the boss. <laughs> and, and I said, I'm going to build whatever I want. And he says, you build whatever you want. We just want to win races. So I did. I built all this new technology, racing suspension. It was all Indianapolis stuff, of which I'd learned from running Indianapolis and doing all the testing for Goodyear and stuff. So all I did was adapt it to snowmobiles. And then on top of that, I got to thinking, wow, I'll put wings on them too. So I, I hired Dan Gurney's head designer on the weekends. Dan doesn't know I'm doing it. <laughs> Flew him in on the weekends, showing the snowmobiles, got a ranch up in the mountains, 8,000 feet high, a lot of snow. That's where I did the development, on the snowmobiles. And so I put wings on them. Well, that, those things are just fly. I mean, go like heck. And so I showed up at Eagle River, Wisconsin. That's where the World Championship races are. And uh, we unload, what I have? Two sleds, I think. And I hired last year's winner, uh, champion, to ride. I had a lot of, I had a million dollar budget. But I didn't take anything for myself. I didn't want to get paid. And I don't owe them anything. They don't owe me anything. I just had a lot of fun 
making stuff I wanted to make. So we unloaded it, and we broke the track record so bad it was scary. And automatically, they started making my wings illegal. Mm -hmm. And I said, wow, that's a terrible thing. It's because I invented something fast. It's illegal. They called it a safety deal. The wings might hit somebody. Well, what do they think a snowmobile does? <laughs> so they'll hit everybody in the track. <laughs> I started fighting them on it, and it could have won, but by the same token, Armco Steel owned the snowmobile company. They sold all the aluminum to all the other companies. They said, Bobby, please don't do that. So at any rate, I put two sleds, took the wings off, put two sleds into the final race, which is like the 8500, and led the thing, we broke the drive chains. Get so much traction that the other sled didn't get, we broke the drive chains. But I put two sleds in. And what was my reward for all that? A party of my choice at the end of the year. Now that could mean what? So I had a party. Had it at George Walker's house, the big boss. Went to Las Vegas, got, got four slot machines, illegal. Had to be illegal sometimes, otherwise didn't have fun. <laughs> Took the racing trailer, put a bunch of sleds in the back of the trailer. Hilton, Mr. Hilton, all of his people were race fans, board of directors. They got the slot machines for me. We put them up in the front of the trailer. They had an inspection station in Arizona in those days. We'd open up those big back doors. They'd look in there and see all these snowmobiles. They didn't see the slot machines. <laughs> the slot machines were for the kids. So, party of my choice. What was it? I invited everybody that wrote about snowmobile racing in the United States. That means Snowgore Magazine, people like that. Invited all those people and their wives, had to pay their airfare, had to pay everything for them. I wanted to have life, life love everybody in the factory that made the racing sets because we sold them, plus ran our own, see? And, and so we invited all the people in the factory that had something to do with making the racing sets. Ended up with probably about five or six hundred people, plus the wives and the kids. So I had to have the slot machines for the kids. And so we had to make lobster pots, because I wanted fresh lobsters. George says, where are you going to get the lobsters? And I says, you up there in the Northeast, where they make them things. You know? <laughs> <laughs> got lots of lobsters. Just, just get an airplane and bring them down. So it's my party, you know. <laughs> so we got live lobsters, we got fresh shrimp. And, and then, so we made lobster pots. And they had to be hemispherical. Why? Because I saw a picture somewhere. That's what they had. And, and so we made three lobster pots and make the burners for it because the water had to stay boiling all the time. Some of you have had lobsters. You know how to do that stuff. And, and so we got shrimp. We had to make the deals to cook the shrimp. And then we had to make long deals. I should went probably about from here to you. Made a big L. It was hamburgers. Cook hamburgers and hot dogs. Made all that stuff. George's brand new house that he just bought, up in the beautiful mountains. So that was my party of my choice. George said, wow. He said, boy, you know how to have a party. Did he spend the money? I said, well, I didn't make any money during the year, did I? And besides that, the sled I ran, we, which my son drove, my oldest son, we won the Western Championship with it. 
So that was a fun deal. But the message is, not that snowmobiling was so great, it's just that it was challenging. And I made a difference to the sport because my eyes see something that other people's eyes don't see sometimes. I figure things can happen if you do certain things. And then I figure out a way to make it happen. Therefore, I became what they call an engineer. Isn't that weird? I didn't go to school. But I think everybody ought to go to school. It should have been a lot easier on me had I done that. Well, Mr. Unser, this has been a, uh, a tremendous experience to have you talk to us today. Believe it or not, an hour is gone. So, not at all. And uh, I know there's many, many stories where that came from, but I think uh, our time up here is... I could been. tell stories all day long. It's funny. It's fun to do if people like it and they listen. And they're not jokes. It's all serious. Don't tell lies, but I do a little bit of innocent cheating along the way. <laughs> Maybe it's interpretation. Racing, it's not, not fun if you cheat in racing. I'm smart the other people. That's good to do. Cheating, no good. No fun cheating. That's what Floyd does. <laughs> <laughs> he was born cheating. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's anyway, true. It's, it's really been fun talking to you. Like I said, I could do it all day long. I enjoy doing it. And it's really fun getting an invite to come. I can't imagine a show this big. It can't knock Chicago, but I can have a little bit warmer outside, and I'd like it, you know. But it's just really, really, really something to see all the cars that all these people have brought back. There isn't a bad one in the whole room. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. My wife, I just called her on the phone a little while ago, and she's just not going to believe what they really have here. One guy makes a phone call and says, come back. He didn't tell me it was this big. I had no idea. You're all smart and lucky to be coming here. Well, what did you, real fast, what did you think when you got the call saying that your 69 Pikes Peak car had been found and it was going to be here? You know, I'm sure you hear these kind of things every once in a while. You know, unusually, I, I, I do a lot of charities now. When I was racing, I did everything for money, for business. I needed money. And and so and now I, I got a couple of bucks and, and I do lots of charity things. And I enjoy doing charity things. I have as much fun doing charity things as I do seeing all these cars. So when, when Bob calls me and asks me to come back here, I thought, well, you know, I think I see a lot of old cars restored. You go to a lot of the shows I go to. Nothing like this, but I've seen bunches of it. And then he tells me that the uh, theme of the whole place is going to be the 69 Ford race car that ran at Pikes Peak. I said, so where the heck did you guys find that thing? I lost track of it quite a while back. So that changed my mind. And I said, man, I'd like to go do that show. Of course, I didn't have any idea that it was this big or this nice. So I'm really glad I came. <laughs> Wish I had about a week so I could see all the cars. You know? <laughs> well, again, we're really fortunate and happy, and uh, thank you very much for coming. Ladies and gentlemen, Bobby Unser. Thanks for all of you. We hope you've enjoyed this special interview with Bobby Unser, and we'd like to thank the Muscle Car and Corvette Nationals for hosting the event 
And a huge thanks to the Brothers Collection for allowing us to play with their amazing collection of cars. And be sure to catch the first 200 episodes of our show at MuscleCarTheWeek.com. And maybe we'll see you at the next Muscle Car and Corvette Nationals in Chicago. I'm Kevin Oste. Thanks for listening.